before we go in today, um, be praying for me throughout this service because um, I feel like God has a good word for us and I feel tired. And so I'm just, just pray that I can deliver this the way God wants it delivered. So we've been studying the discourses of Matthew. As you know, we've been going through the five major sermons in the book of Matthew that Jesus preaches. Um, Matthew captured five of these main service, uh, sermons and he kind of separates the book with them. So you'll have kind of a bunch of things Jesus does and then he'll stop and preach a sermon and then a bunch of things he does and then he'll stop and preach a sermon. It seems to be the way Matthew kind of organized this book around these five sermons. We've been going through them this summer and we'll be up until November. And so we started out with the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about it being kind of selfie mode. You know, we kind of had the camera pointing in for a little bit, looking at ourselves, looking at the way we do things, especially the underneath stuff, the the kind of in your soul stuff where he's like, you've heard it said, don't do these things. I'm saying if you even feel them on the inside, you've already done them. So Jesus kind of digs into us for a while um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we went through that and then we kind of flip the camera, front-facing camera through the missional uh, discourse where Jesus sends out 12 of his disciples and he sends them out to go. And so they flip the camera and now it's all outward stuff. Now it's all how you engage the world and how you carry the gospel forward and how you advance the kingdom of God. And so he empowered them to go. We talked about that. He told them where to go, what to say, um, how to go, like how to plan for it and really not plan for it. Um, what to expect when you're out on mission, the kind of things. And most of that was pretty spooky. He said it's not going to always be nice. People are not always going to receive it well. Um, when you're advancing a kingdom, we talked about last week, when you're advancing a real kingdom, those who are benefiting from the current kingdom may not like that. They may not be real excited about you bringing this new kingdom if they're doing just fine in the current kingdom. And so that leads to persecution. The people who are doing great in the current kingdom don't necessarily want us to advance this flipped kingdom where blessed are the poor and blessed are the meek and blessed are the merciful. And so they fight against it. They push against this new kingdom we're advancing because they like the current one. Um, And then he talked about how to handle those things. And finally, last week, we got into the last, we wrapped up the missional discourse um, talking about uh, the why, the big why question, why we go. And he finally got into kind of the reward that's attached to going. And if you remember, he talked about a standard kind of uh, rabbinical saying, which was, if you bless a prophet, you get rewarded with the prophet's reward. If you bless a righteous man, you get rewarded with a righteous man's reward. And we talked about how religion always works this way, where the, the, kind of, the better you do, the more reward you get. The, the, better, the, higher, the more important thing you do, the better the reward you get. And Jesus breaks that up and he flips it and he says... He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the Father. So there's no more rankings. When you do something, and he breaks all the way down to anyone who gives a drink to a child gets gets the ultimate reward. Because when you do something for a child, you're doing it for a disciple. When you do it for a disciple, you're doing it for Jesus. When you do it for Jesus, you're doing it for God. And so the reward suddenly has changed and it's and and it it tears religion apart because there's no more ranking system there's no more you know whoever does better gets more blah blah it's grace is what it is it's grace and and so jesus offers us our reward and this reward becomes the why question which i think is something we could do more of Um, we're really big into the what questions like and what's the when we introduce ourselves somebody the very first question we ask hi i'm chris hi i'm bill what what do you do, right? That's what we ask. What do you do? And, that's, and, we're, and kids, we bring them up. What do you want to be when you grow up? What, 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 what? Like it's all the what question. What if we flip that and started asking the why question? Hi, I'm Chris. Why do you do? 
Like, what would that do to us? Like, why do you do what you do? Honestly, just to get the bills paid. I don't know. I don't know why I do what I do. Like, why do you, like, what, somebody's like, I'm, I'm an engineer. Why? Why do, you, why do you engineer? I've got school loans. I don't know. Like, you know, what if, we, what if we raise our kids to say, why do you want to be when you grow up? Wouldn't that be an awesome question for our kids to wrestle with? Why do you want to be when you grow up? Like, whatever you, whatever you want to be, why do you want to be it? Why do you want to be when you grow up? And I feel like that's what Jesus did in the missional discourses. He basically said, uh, this is the why question of, of living. This is why you live. This isn't what you do. You can go do whatever you want to do. This is why you do. Like, are you advancing the kingdom of God? As an engineer, are you advancing the kingdom of God as an engineer? As a mechanic, are you advancing the kingdom of God as a mechanic? As, as a doctor, are you advancing the kingdom of God as a doctor? As a stay-at-home mom, are you advancing the kingdom of God as a stay-at-home mom? He wrestles the wide question, and that's what I love the most about the missional discourse is that it takes us down to purpose. It breaks down ultimately to our purpose. So this week we're starting a brand new discourse, and I'm excited about it. This one's going to be a lot of fun. It's a, um, uh, it's a neat one. We call this the parabolic discourse. So this is a, a message built entirely of parables where Jesus is teaching a crowd kind of about the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and he uses these metaphorical narratives that we call parables, the parabolic discourse. The title of my message is Google Translate, which is, we're going to get to that. Um, And I'm going a little bit out of order because in the parabolic discourse, Jesus actually opens up with a parable. He starts with a parable. It's the parable of the sower. We're going to study that next week. But he opens with the parable of the sower, and then the disciples pull him aside, and they're like, dude, what are you doing? Like, what are you talking about? We got a whole crowd of people here who came to hear you teach and we can't understand any of what you're saying. Like what, why are you teaching in parables? Like you can see, you can kind of hear their shock in the scripture reading tonight where they're like, why, why are you teaching like this? What does this even mean? And he gives them this answer. And it's kind of weird because I've heard a lot of different preachers. Um, actually, if you ever wanted to say that to a preacher, like, what are you talking about? Not me, obviously, other preachers where you're like, dude, I don't even understand anything you're talking about. Uh, I always wondered how Jesus took that. Like, um, was he was he cool with them going? We don't get it, dude. Like, we don't understand anything you're saying. And I always think about it like voice to text. Like, you ever get a voice to text from somebody? You can meet. I get them from Judy all the time. When you're reading, it, you're like, okay, I gotta. I actually look away from my phone. I, I read it and I look away from my phone and say it out loud. Like, what would this sound like out loud? Does it actually make words if I say it out loud? But you know, we get confused by what people say, and so. I thought it would be good to start out by diving into this why question. Why parables? Why did Jesus teach this way? Because that's what the disciples were asking. Why why are you teaching this way? And I've heard a lot of reasons. I've heard we talk about a lot of reasons why Jesus might have used parables because they give us a concrete understanding of a complex reality, we say, like the parable of the the seeds. Like, okay, so we all get what seeds do. They go and they're going to go. They bring forth fruit. They multiply, blah, blah, blah. And so we can use something concrete. We understand, understand something abstract we may not understand. Okay, that makes sense. We also know that parables can speak, a narrative can speak to our emotions the way, you know, a a discourse or a dialogue might be able to speak to our mind. And so I can say to you, God loves you and will always take you back. And that's powerful. That's a good truth. But if I say to you, there was once a guy and and he he looked at his dad and he said, "I I wish you were dead. I wish I already had my inheritance that I'll get when you die. And his dad loved him so much he gave it to him. And the son went and he squandered it and he ruined his life. And he, and he came to himself and he's on. 
He's on his way back and he's rehearsing his lines and he's saying, Dad, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just make me one of your servants. He's got his lines in his head and he's ready and he doesn't realize his dad has been on the porch every night looking out, waiting for him. And he's been looking and he sees a speck on the horizon one day and he runs and the servants freak out because they know the old man doesn't run and so they're running with him. And he gets out there and the son sees him coming and he stands up and he gets ready to say his lines. He says, Dad, I'm not even worried. And the dad says, shut up. Somebody get me a ring. Somebody get me a robe. Start the grill. We're having a party. My son was lost and now he's found. That hits us differently than God loves you and will always take you back, right? So Jesus uses these narratives because they, obviously I'm an emotional basket case, so I cry at everything, but they, they hit our emotions in a way that just the, just the discourse doesn't. And so that's one of the reasons we say he used parables, because we can feel a parable the way we can't feel the truth. And that's true. I, obviously, I can feel the parable of the lost son, I know that's me. And you can just write down. Anytime I teach on it, I'll cry because I'm the son. And I've always known I was the son. And so I can't preach that parable without feeling myself standing there going, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And feeling his arms around me. Like that's where I live. And so they hit our emotions in a very special way. There's also the fact that he uses parables sometimes to help us come to our own conclusions. There's one where he says, hey, there's this, um, there's this wicked vineyard manager. We're back. Okay. Why didn't he come in glory with angels and lay his hands on the hurt children and awaken the dead soldiers and restore the burned villages and the blasted and poisoned land? Why didn't he cow our ignorance Lying awake in the night, for sleep was hard and coming. I couldn't imagine the Almighty, I could imagine the Almighty finger riding in the stars for all the world to see. Go home. But thinking such things was dangerous, and it was as dangerous as praying them. I knew he had thought, I knew who had thought such things before. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend from the cross that we may see and believe. Where in my own arrogance was I going to hide? Christ did not descend from the cross except into the grave. And why not otherwise? Wouldn't it have been fine comical expression on the faces of the scribes and the chief priests and the soldiers if at that moment he had come down in power and glory? Why didn't he do it? Why hasn't he done it in one of a thousand good times between then and now? I knew the answer. I knew it a long time before I could admit it. For all the suffering of the world is in it. He didn't. He hasn't. Because from the moment he did, he would be the absolute tyrant of the world. We would be his slaves. For those who hated him and hated one another and hated their own souls would have to believe in in him then. From that moment, the possibility that we might be bound to him and he to us and us to one another by love would forever be ended. One way to think about it. And however you think about it, we have to admit that God always hides himself a little. He hides himself. And this has a bigger um, than we think because we often witness to people like God is a, uh, like God is logic, something that can be explained irresistibly. We like to go at people as though we can somehow convince them 
like, like we're teaching them math or something. Like, see, obviously, these two things plus these two things equals four things. It's irresistible. You can't deny it. And sometimes we think witnessing God is that way. We think we can somehow um, come to people and, uh, and almost force them to believe that if we can just show them all the evidence, right? Except for the fact that something spiritually real and significant is happening when someone puts their faith in God. This isn't math. This isn't just a mental thing that you can convince somebody of. This is, the Bible refers to this as birth, like something that's very real that's taking place. This isn't, you can't logic someone into birth. Esther was, uh, uh, one of our kids came backwards once, and, uh, and so his legs are out, only his head is still in the cervix. And so she's still in transition, only we can see the baby, and we're trying to push. And suddenly it, it, it dawns on somebody, you can't push through transition. You just can't do it. Like it, you, can't, you can't make birth happen out of order, in other words, what I'm saying. And so sometimes, uh, so we just had to sit there and wait for her to go through transition, even though we can see a baby. Really creepy and weird, so don't try it. Um, but sometimes we do that. Like we get things out of order, like God's going through this birthing process and we're attacking somebody as though we can make this happen with good reason and logic. And so it always, I, I always picture like what happens when you're trying to reveal God to somebody and God's hiding in the bushes. Like, and he's like, because I mean, the way Jesus makes this sound is there's times when God does things exactly so he can hide himself. We don't like that a lot, but you can't logic people into the kingdom. Sometimes you can answer some questions, you can clear some roadblocks, but you can't make something spiritual happen with logic. A lot of times when we've been walking with Jesus for a while, we'll, we'll, we'll feel like we made a decision, like we'll feel like we had this moment when that was the moment my life turned. That was the moment that I made this decision to follow Christ. And then we walk with Jesus for a while and we look backwards and we see all these times before that when God was just like tugging on us and steering us and blah, blah, blah. And we can go, man, I don't even know when I started my journey with God. I know that moment that I felt like I made a decision, but holy cow, he was active in my life way before that. And I wouldn't have been here if he hadn't have done this and that and the other and, and put me with that person to answer some of my questions and that person to answer some of my questions. And at times I was going, what is going on? I don't even believe in God. And and why didn't he just open the heavens? Because he was hiding in the bushes. And the reason is because of our second thing. Actually, we're not there yet. Um, Jesus told a story uh, about a rich man who died and in pretty close proximity to one of his servants. And the rich man, you can tell nothing's changed in his heart because even after death, he's telling Abraham, he's like, send Lazarus down here to give me a drink. Like he still, still kind of has that servant master mentality. Send Lazarus to give me a drink and just to put a couple drops of water on me. And Abraham's like, you can't. Like that's, there's a gulf between us. This can't happen. And so finally, I think you can sense him start to break. He's like, well, then send him to talk to my brothers so they don't end up here. And Abraham says, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. And he says, uh, no, God, because they won't believe Moses and the prophets. And Abraham says this line, and it's haunting. He says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't even listen if somebody came back from the dead. They wouldn't even. And so how does that make you feel if, if, if somebody can't hear Moses and the prophets? If, if they wouldn't believe someone resurrected from the dead, how does that make you feel about your Facebook comment? 
How does that make you feel about those arguments when you're on there going, no, but you should... If they're not going to listen to somebody who comes back from the dead, what hope do we have on Facebook? Right? I mean, what hope do we have of convincing people? I think love works way better than debate. I think love works way better than arguing, than trying to beat somebody up with the truth and find the truth. If somebody couldn't raise from the dead and convince them, what hope do you have with an argument? John the Baptist, who played a crucial role in the redemption narrative, hit a point where I think his faith was a little low. He had been imprisoned. He was locked up. And I think he knew he wasn't going to get out. So he sent his disciples. He said, go ask Jesus if he's the one. So they come to Jesus and said, are you the one? Straight answer, are you the one? Or do we look for somebody else? And Jesus, if anybody deserved a shortcut, if anybody deserved a straight answer from Jesus, yes, I'm the one. Tell him to chill out. He's going to be in paradise. It's all good. It would be John. But what's Jesus say? Go and tell him what you've seen. The deaf hear, the blind see, you know, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, John got the same evidence we get. Even this guy who was part of the redemptive narrative, he had to come straight in the way for Jesus didn't get a shortcut. He got the same evidence. Because for some reason, God likes to use faith. It's the currency of the kingdom. It's what he's chosen for the way that we will engage him is by faith. So sometimes we click our tongue at Israel. You know, we, we think, man, if I could go back and see the pillar of fire and the pillar of like, those guys, I can't believe they turned away from God. Like they, they saw all that amazing things and immediately we're like, why don't we just go back to Egypt? You know, we, we say it all snotty like we're any better. But I think we're the exact same way. I think, you know, we'll, we see things from God and we're like blown away. And then a week later we're like, where's God? He never takes care of me. So God prompts our heart. He draws us. He tugs us. But he always seems to leave this element of doubt. He hides himself. So Jesus seems to indicate in his explanation that part of the reason he teaches with parables is to leave God a hiding place. He says they are hearing all about the kingdom, and yet God stays hidden. It's almost like he's saying, trust me, those who are supposed to hear will hear which is basically my second point. And it's that you have to have to get. And we don't like this one because it feels like a little bit unjust, like those who have just keep on getting more and those who don't have, you know, keep going backwards. And yet this is a reality we see all the time. It absolutely exists everywhere. I've got animals. And whenever I put feed out, the alphas, the biggest ones, the ones who could stand to skip a meal or two, are always the ones who get to come in and eat first and eat their fill and leave. And then the little scrawny runts are the ones who, you know, you got to find sneaky ways where you throw some food over there and then you sprinkle some over here so the runts can get some while the pigs are over here going nuts, you know. Those who have always seem to be able to get more. It exists in finances. Have you guys ever seen an amazing deal, an absolute killer sale on something out of your price range? There's nothing more frustrating when you're like, Dude, it's like a $40,000 truck. The guy only wants fifteen grand for it, which might as well be a million to me because I got like 60 bucks. Like there's nothing more frustrating than saying I have to have money to save money. That's so crazy. Like, but it, it exists. We all deal with it. And we all play the, if I only had the lot, if I won the lottery game, like the money I would save if I won the lottery. I'd sit, you know, I'd be able to make these deals and blah, blah, blah. 
be able to take advantage of all this stuff. It exists in our health. This is a very real thing. When I was at my biggest and I got a membership to the Y, it was like I walked there going, cannot do that. Absolutely cannot do that. That would kill me. Cannot do that. So I had to swim. I was like, the only thing I could do is float in the water. Like, I had to lose enough weight to where I could even start to do the other stuff. I had to get, like, I had to do a certain level of easy exercise before I could even do the stuff I really needed to do. And everybody's like, dude, you should walk. And I was like, on these knees with this weight, like, I'm, I can go like a block and I'm, <laughs> I'm crawling home. Like, you have to get in shape to be able to get in shape. You have to have to be able to get more. It's a reality we know. So though it seems unfair, we instinctively know that we have to have to get. And I think this does have a spiritually significant meaning to us. Because how many of you have ever experienced that the more time you spend in the Bible, the more Bible you get in you, the more comfortable you get with the Scripture, the more you get out of it when you go to it. When I first started studying the Bible, I did not understand a word of it. I was just like, what in the... Eh. I had a mentor at the time, and I, I had a job that had these scheduled breaks. And I had a little notepad and a little pocket Bible. And whenever my break would come up, I'd get my pocket Bible, and I would just start reading. And about every three words, I'm writing down a word to ask Butch. I'm like, I don't know what, it, I don't know what this is. I don't know what that is. And every night, I'd come home, and I would go, here are my questions. And I would just go through pages. I did not understand any of this stuff that I read today. And he would just, this is that. And he would just start teaching me based on... And then, then you spend some time in it, and the more you get, the more you have, suddenly the more you get. The first time we pray, it's weird. It's just weird. You're just, so I just talk. That's what I do. I just talk. Like, do I look somewhere? Do I close my eyes? What do I do? And they're like, hey, just talk to God like he's a friend. Like people who have prayed forever, no, nah, just be casual and talk to God like, you're a fr- like he's your friend. And I'm like, dude, like I look at my friend's facial expressions. I'm playing like... And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you pray for a while and you get a little more comfortable with it and, and it comes naturally. Now you just start praying. I saw an interview with Serena Williams one time after she won like her nine million, you know, Grand Slam, whatever. And uh, you ever seen an interview with Serena Williams? Whenever she's like doing a press conference, she's got this really soft voice for how non-soft she seems. Um, and somebody said, like, you're the first woman to ever win, blah, 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 blah. Like, to what do you accredit all of your success? And her answer was, well, I've played a lot of tennis. Like, that was serious. Well, I've played a lot of tennis. That was how she answered it. And I, and I laughed. But I think that's a lot of times the right answer. Like, people are like, man, I can't believe how, how you know the Bible so well, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I've studied a lot of the Bible. Like, I've spent a lot of time doing this. You know, people are like, I love hearing you pray. Like, you pray so awesome, blah, blah, blah. I've spent a lot of time praying. You know, like, we, we see people in a moment, and we're like, like, man, I wish I could have that. And you're like, well, that's about 20 years of experience. To get started. You know, they've, they've done a lot of praying. You see somebody, you know, you're hanging out with somebody, and somebody hurts them, and they're like, um, and you're like, oh. And they're like, nah, it's not worth the fight. I forgive them. And you're like, oh. If that happened to me, shoot, I would do, uh, well, I've had to forgive a lot of people in my life. Like, there's a lot of practice behind this. This doesn't come naturally. This is a lot of time invested. I've forgiven a lot of people. You know, that's, a lot of times that's the answer. It's not, you know, some supernatural miracle thing. It's that I, I had one instance, I forgave, and I leveraged what I had and forgave again, and then it got a little bit easier, and then I forgave. And then, yeah, 20 years down the road, it's like not worth my time. 
I know if I get all caught up in this offense, I'm the one that suffers, not them. I've done this a few times. I've I've played a lot of tennis. And I know how this works now. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to forgive. It's easier. People, we do it with worship. Like, people are like, I get so distracted with the kids around and I can't really get into worship and blah, blah, blah. And how do you just, like, seem to get so into it? I've done a lot of worship. Like, I'm like... This is years and years and years of doing this. You know, it doesn't take me long to... I mean, you see, I tried to tell a story and started bawling. The story I picked to tell and it made me bawl. Like, when it comes to God, yeah, my emotions are in it. I'm all in it. Because I've done it. Like, I've been doing this and it's, it's what's there. So the more you have, the more you're given. So what's that mean to us? It means we should leverage what we have to get more. Always. If you have to forgive somebody and all you can muster up is, God, I'm trying, then yeah, that's what you bring to the table. If that's all you got right now, you bring that. Like that guy, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Like you bring what you have to the table, you leverage that to get more. If all you know is one Bible story, that's awesome. Learn a second and then compare it to the first and see what you get when you put the two together. Leverage the one you got to get another one and then, then see where you're at comparing two Bible stories that you've studied. If your schedule's totally crazy and you don't really have time to pray, blah, 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 but you've got a 20-minute drive to work, yeah, that's prayer time right there. Dig in. Take 20 minutes. See what you can get in 20 minutes. Leverage that one thing you have. If you know you don't have time to Sabbath, but you get up 30 minutes earlier than everybody else, put the phone down, put on some music that relaxes you and sit in Sabbath for 30 minutes if that's all you've got. Whatever it is you have, you leverage that. I mean, you, we've got the parable of the talents. And the, the thing I love the most about this parable is you've got a guy that was given ten talents, a guy that was given five, a guy that was given one. The guy with ten invests it, makes ten more. The guy with five invests it, makes five more. The guy with one buries it and saves it. I don't want to lose it. And so he, he buries it and holds on to it. The thing I love most about this talent is that the guy that only got five talents got the same reward as the guy. He got the same attaboy at the end as the guy that got ten talents. Nowhere did the master go, dude, he made me ten talents. What are you doing with only five? He didn't do that. He said, you leverage what you had and got more. And I have to assume that next time the guy left, the guy with ten talents is now playing with twenty. The guy with twenty is playing with ten. And the guy with one, he had his taken away. But So if all you got is one talent, that's not a big deal. You leverage it and get two. Then the next time it comes around, you've got two talents. You leverage that to four. And you, whatever we have... That's what we bring to the table. We talked last week about how one of Jesus' biggest miracles was because one little kid brought a fish sandwich and said, hey, this is what I have to offer. And Jesus said, I can work with that. I can work with that. And he started dividing it and dividing it. Died 12 baskets left over when he's done because a kid gave what he had. Last week we talked about the reward of the missional mindset was given for one glass of water given to a child. Anybody who gives a glass of water to a child shall never lose his reward. Whatever we have, even if it's a glass of water, we leverage that for the kingdom. So we know we have to have to get, which means if we have, we can get more. We can leverage that. We can always be growing. If we don't know how to pray, we can... Work until we do. We can leverage what we can say until we're good at it. If we barely know the Bible, we can take what we do know and leverage that to know it better. 
And there's actually a deeper thing I want to get here about this having to have to get. And that's the reality. We talked about this earlier in the summer, that there are some things you can only understand from the inside. There are some things that, like we talked about, uh, the, have you ever been had one of those guess you had to be there stories? Like when like some of your friends go and do something, they come back and try to tell you about it, and they're all like laughing. Oh, it's awesome. No, you had to be there. And you're like, oh, man. So not only did I not get to be there, you guys suck at telling the story, so I don't even get to hear the story now. Like, because you had to be there. I guess you had to be there. And there's some things that are just that way. You have to, you have to be there to get them. And sometimes kingdom things can't be understood from the outside. You can't be a spectator outside of it and go, I don't understand what's happening in there. I don't think any of that's right. I don't think any of that works. Marriage is this way. You don't just test drive marriage. You can't, like, you, we think we do. We date for a while and we think, okay, we're compatible. We can make, and you should do that. You should make sure. But then you all of a sudden you get married and you realize this was nothing like I expected. Like, nothing can get me ready for this except for this. Like, you know, some things can only be understood from the inside. And then as a married couple, you try to tell people like what marriage is about. They're like, I totally get it. I'm so excited. You're like, apparently I didn't explain this well. Like, <laughs> like it's awesome. I'm telling you it's awesome, but it's a lot of work. They're like, I'm so excited. You're like, oh, that doesn't feel like the ex- response I was hoping for. So you can tell you, and you almost go, you'll have to be on the inside to get it. Like you'll have to, like, yes, it's amazing. Yes, I, I, I love being married. I wouldn't trade it for the world, but You'll have to, we'll talk next year. We'll talk next year. That, you, know, you know you have to be on the inside to get it. This is why you can go to the mountains with two people who can go to the, look at the same view and one person's like, this is amazing how back, you know, in the, when all the continents were together, the geological pressure was so great that it shoved these up out of the earth. You know, it's amazing how much pressure that would have been. And he looks over and the other guy's just bawling because <laughs> they can see God and the intricacy of his of his design and, and how, and the, the creativity of his color and beauty. And, and you're just like, I can't even talk because I'm so like moved by God. And those two people, they're looking at the same mountain. You know, they're looking at the same thing and they're getting two totally different things because one is seeing it from the inside. One is seeing a whole different thing. Some things you have to be inside to get. You have to have to get. So sometimes we have to have an experience with God, like a real taste and see moment. To be able to get the rest, you have to have to get. So as we study these parables, we have to understand that the parables aren't just so that we can explain complex biblical truths to outsiders. That's not really what the parables do. Sometimes we feel like that's what they should do, like we can use these to to break down the truth into things everybody can understand. But Jesus says that's not actually what they're doing. It's actually the opposite. The more of the kingdom you have inside of you, the more you get out of the parables. The more the parables are able to speak to you. The more you have, the more you get. The more you invest in the kingdom of God, the more it invests back into you. Last week I did some work over at Doug's and and I did some work in the basement and I got kind of caught up in it. I was supposed to just move some trash and I was like, oh, this would look good here and this is... I'm, I'm like got my feng shui on, you know, I'm like putting stuff, nobody, I didn't get a single chuckle out of feng shui, I had to look that word up, so I'm, I'm like making things symmetrical, and I'm, you know, this would look better here, blah, blah, blah. I'm getting all into it, and Doug comes out like, dude, you should have been an interior designer, now here's the thing, I don't give one 
like I am so terrible at interior design, I just happen to live with an interior designer. So I've got 26 years of her going, no, a little bit to the left. Is that good? No, no, a little bit back to the right. Okay. Is that good? Yeah. And so, you know, I've got, I want to nail here. I want, you know, I've got 26 years of this now and it just starts to rub off on me. And so, like, I have, I'm the kind of person that when Esther met me, you, there was no carpet showing on the floor and bikini posters on the wall. That's what I was rocking for interior design. Like, that's, that's what I'm bringing to the table. And, and now, you know, I'm like, ooh, this would look so much better, you know. And that's, and that's not, that's just her. That's just exposure. That's just us spending time together. Like, I never was, I'm like, would you teach me how you do that? Like, Oh, Master, I would like to learn from you. That was not it at all. It's just when you spend time with people, it rubs off on you. When you spend time with other people, you'll start to notice their character. Anybody ever picked up like somebody else's like little sayings, you know, and you, and you hear it come out of your mouth and you're like, okay, that was weird because that's theirs. But it also felt kind of natural. Like, I kind of like that. I'm going to start using that. Like, People rub off on you. It's the same way with the kingdom. The longer we're in the kingdom, the longer we are moving with the Spirit, the longer the Holy Spirit's operating in our lives and moving with us, the more we notice, like, I'm not even trying to do half of this stuff. It's just like it's become part of me. It's actually changed me from the inside out in such a way that it, it feels kind of natural. Stuff that I used to think was weird and awkward and, and uncomfortable is now part of who I am. Because when you have you suddenly start to have more. When you're on the inside, you start to see more. This actually kind of brings up my third point, And that's that timing is everything. I haven't been reading my scriptures. I've been going, that's okay. And then in them, this prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Be blessed, or but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Timing is everything. When Esther and I first got married, we haven't been married very long. Um, and we were out, we were actually garage sailing and she met a family that was selling, wanting to get rid of a dog. And Esther wanted the dog. And we lived in a little apartment and there was, we were gone all the time. And so I was like, you know, we can't, there's no way we can handle a dog. Like we can't do in our little tiny apartment, we can't do a dog. And she wanted the dog. I did not want a dog. But we were going to a Bible-believing church, and the church had told me what my job was as a man. I'm to lead this household. I'm the one who's supposed to, you know, when, the, when we have a disagreement, the buck stops here. Uh, ultimately, I'm the one who has to say, and I knew that my wife had grown up in that kind of a church. She was going to be a submissive wife. And so I finally I was like, we cannot do the dog. I'm sorry. This breaks my heart, but we cannot do the dog. So I'm putting the dog in the car. And we're heading back to the apartment. <laughs> that, that actually did that actually did not happen. But I, I told that it's not even my it's not even an original joke. But I told that to say in comedy, timing is everything. The only thing that makes that joke funny is the pause, right? It's that it's the it's the timing of the thing. A good narrative is the same way. A good story, you know, we don't just tell the story. We, we build it up and we, we hold this suspense and this climax and then we, then we uh, tell it. Timing is always everything. I think marriage is, I think timing is everything in marriage. I can tell you, and this is not a made-up story. If you come home and the house is absolutely trashed, it's not the time to say, what did you do all day? 
That's not the time. You do not. Yeah, that's a true story. I actually did that. I, I actually. And now I've learned to walk in the door and go. Now I've learned to look at the mess and go, oh, man, she must have had a rough day. Like, I know my wife. She's not, you know, she's a pretty good housekeeper. If it looks like this, this, you know, it's when I just walk in and go, um, what can I do to help? And would you like a glass of wine? Like, that's now I've, you know, timing is everything. You just have to know when to ask the questions. And then later you ask what happened today or, or whatever. Timing is everything. So if you look at this passage, Jesus does several things with timing here. He, he plays with timing. First, he says, this is about that. Like he, po- he points back at Isaiah and he says, what's happening here is actually about this is about that. So he, he plays with timing and says what is happening today is actually fulfilling something from six or seven hundred years ago. Like, so this is about that. And, and immediately, you know, something's going on in time here. But then he extends it and he says that all the, the prophets, um, these people to whom like intimate and intricate details about the kingdom of God and God himself were given would have killed to see what you see. Like this, what is happening right now was their hope and dream. Like they would have loved to see what you're getting to see right now. They were dying to see this, but they didn't live in the right time because timing is everything. This is a, this is a big narrative. Timing is everything. I always think about what the prophets would say about today when I have a device in my pocket with like 700 translations of the Bible and, and a thousand you know, different commentaries that I can just pull out and read it any second, like, and all of the technology you can use to do word searches and, and whatnot, 2,000 years of commentary and, and preaching, and not to mention the whole story. Like they didn't have the whole story. Like they're, they're playing in early chapters where they don't even know exactly where this is headed, you know, we, we often feel like, man, if I could go back where Elijah was, you know, if I could go back and see that kind of stuff and walk with Elijah. Can you imagine being with Eli- like Elijah? And, and first of all, there's no air conditioning yet. Ugh. Like, no, thank you. But for real, like to, to not even know, like we, so much of what we do is based on the fact that we, we get to see the entire gospel. We, get, we have the cross to look back on and see everything through that. They didn't have that yet, so they're, they're, they're guessing because it was a different time. This also has a pretty major import in our life because I think timing for us is still everything. Over and over again, the Bible uses the metaphor of planting. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's one of the most common metaphors in Scripture. And we all, if you've ever grown anything, you know there's, there's plowing, there's plant the seed, there's watering, there's weeding, there's pruning. The Bible says there's dung, dunging, dunging, fertilizing. All right, I'll use the non-King James word. Harvesting, like they're, they're, all these are stages and they have to happen at the right time. I have a garden and last year we didn't grow any tomatoes because we, got, we, we planted early. That's a thing. If you plant early and then you have a late freeze, you lose all your tomatoes. So we didn't get any tomatoes last year. Because we got our timing wrong. This year we're not going to have any corn because we got in late. And so timing is everything with vegetables. We have to weed, we have to water. And all the plant metaphors, I think, play out in our lives. 
that we have, like everything in our lives is happening on this time. And so we're, we're talking to somebody about the gospel and we're beating them up, trying to reap a harvest, trying to, man, trying to get them, trying to get a prayer, trying to get something, trying to get a, and they just got planted. They've got a ton of watering left to happen. They've got some weeding that's got to go on. And we're over here trying to pick fruit when the thing's barely even a seed. Right? Timing is everything. I had a maintenance guy. I know I've told this story before. And if you go to church here for a while, you're probably going to hear it a thousand times. And I promise he's not the only guy I've ever witnessed to. It's just the only one that ever went like this. I'm listening to Christian music. He walks in and goes, are you a Christian? <clears throat> and I said, uh, yeah, are you? He goes, no, but I'd like to be. I was like, why, why, why aren't you? He goes, dude, I've done a lot of bad stuff. I was like, perfect. That's the whole reason to become a Christian. <clears throat> I literally, the only scripture I had to use was Jesus said he didn't come for the healthy, but the sick. Like, that's the whole reason. And he was like, seriously? And I was like, yeah. He was like, so how do I do it? And I was like, well, we pray. And, like, I was, and we prayed and we opened the yellow pages and found him a church close to his house. And I actually had a friend that went there, so it worked out perfect. And he walked out and I was like, that was awesome. I was talking to people about Jesus. It was always that easy. And then immediately I thought, you know, somebody has probably put in years with this guy. And I just got to walk up and pick the right fruit, you know. And I prayed for that person. And I've actually had that happen. You ever had that happen where you work on somebody forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? And they come back and go, dude, I talked to this guy and I'm a Christian. And you're like, seriously? You wouldn't pray with me? Like all the work I put in and you pray with some total stranger? Oh. But, but there's a timing. And, and a lot of times we get... We feel like we ought to be able to walk up with somebody if I've got just the right argument and if I can, make, if I can answer all their questions, if I can say it just right, if I can do that, then, then I can win this person for Christ. And the reality is, you might just be the waterer. And you might have to water for a couple of years and someone else gets to harvest. Like Everything has a timing. Timing is everything. It's true of salvation. I think it's also true of God's Word in our life. I was over at Dale's and we were in his backyard and he's got these two, two gorgeous trees that are all leafed out and they kind of block the entire backyard, make you feel like you're in like an oasis somewhere. You, can't, you forget you're in a neighborhood. You can't see any other houses through these trees. They're amazing and they just shade the entire yard. And it's beautiful. And Bill and I are talking to Dale and Dale goes, uh, man, I bought those boogers when they were like this tall. I was like, how long ago was that? He was like, over 20 years. It was 20, 20 years ago. I was like, dude, that is foresight right there. I don't, I don't even, like, I don't even wonder what my kids are going to be like in 20 years. I, that's too far ahead for me. Like, bought trees, put them where he was going to want them someday and let them go. And just 20 years later, he's got this gorgeous backyard that he can sit and enjoy. And a lot of times, um, I think it's that way with us. Have you, ever, have you ever done the thing where you go, I didn't really get anything out of that service. I didn't really... Like I went to church, I didn't really get anything out of that service. We've all done it. Come on, admit it. We've all done that. We're like, eh, I didn't really get anything out of that. What you mean is, I didn't harvest anything out of that. What you should do is go, okay, I didn't feel like I got anything, which meant there was some seed planted. Now I need to pray that God would water that seed that I just received tonight. Now I need to pray that God would just bring life out of whatever it was that I got tonight because I didn't really feel anything. Maybe, maybe it was just breaking up ground, but you can tell when ground is getting broken up. Those aren't fun at all. But maybe, you know, maybe I didn't feel anything because it was just planting seed. 
And it'll be a while before that word comes to harvest, before whatever God put in me tonight comes to harvest. And this is hard because we like to judge the story by the scene. Right now, um, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, they all have these stories, you know, they, you know somebody added to their story and you... And that's a joke because that is not a story. That's a scene at best. And not even usually a full scene. It's just like a little clip. A story isn't done till it's done. Like, we, we, you know, we judge, what if Joseph had judged his story while he's at the bottom of the pit? His brothers had just dumped him in there. Or what if he judged his story while he's shackled behind the Ishmaelite traders being drugged to Egypt? Or what if he judges, judges his story because he gets a decent job. I'm in a pretty good place. I'm taken care of. Or what if he judges his story when he's being accused by Potiphar's wife? Or what if he judges his story when he's in the prison and the, the, the cupbearer has forgotten about him? He said, remember me when you, go to, when you go to Pharaoh, and he didn't. He forgot him. I would hope he would judge his story when he's standing there with his brothers going, what, say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of a people. Like... That's the story. Any of these are just a scene. And you can never judge the story by the scene. That's a bunch of bad scenes that led to an amazing story and the saving of a whole people. You can never judge the story by the scene. What if, what if we judge the redemptive story on Saturday night, on Good Saturday, when all of hell is rejoicing because Jesus is in the grave? What if you judge the story right there? That's just a scene. That's just a scene. The story is in the resurrection. The story is in the, the empowering of the church and sending them forth. The story is when Jesus comes to, to redeem what is his. That's the story. You can never judge the story by the scene. I dreamed about planting this church over 26 years ago. Judy and I were talking about it. I looked it up. We did a study, and, I, and Esther wasn't into it at the time. And so I wrote this big, this big uh, in, it was a study that you journal in. This was actually a little bit further into it. Um, this was about 15 years ago. And I wrote, God, I know what you've called me to do, but she won't do it. And I wrote it in all caps. <laughs> You'll have to speak to her heart is what I, is what I wrote. And I, was, and I shut it, and I was, <laughs> I was grumpy. And... That was just a scene. And now here we are, we're a, we're a church. And we've gained some people, we've added some people that I absolutely love with all my heart and I'm thrilled they're here. We've lost a couple. That's still just a scene. It's not the story. There's more story to be written. Timing is everything. So if there's one thing I've learned about the parables over the years is that they're these little time-release bombs that you can study a hundred times and then all of a sudden you read them a hundred and first time and they just explode into your life in a whole different way because timing is everything. They can teach us, answer questions, convict us, scare the hell out of us, encourage us, wreck our lives. The parables can, can absolutely undo us. So how do we respond to this? So as we enter this phase of our study of, of Jesus' sermons of the parabolic discourse and look at these parables, my prayer is that our eyes would see and our ears would hear and that our hearts would understand. It's that simple. 
because there are clearly two groups of people that Jesus is talking about here. And I don't usually like in and out language, us and them. Like I, I don't usually do that. But Jesus is clearly saying there are two groups of people. There are those who do not get these and there are those that get these. There are those that these speak to and there are those that these don't speak to. So my prayer is, God, let us be those that these speak to. Open our hearts. Open our eyes. My response comes from verse 36 of this same chapter. I'm going to put it up here. This wasn't in our reading tonight, but he says, Then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house and the disciples said, Please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. As we dive into this discourse, as we take communion tonight and sing one last song, my prayer is, Holy Spirit, be our Google translator. (laughs) As we put in these parables, tell us what they mean. Speak to our hearts. Let them go in and, and, and plant something in us. Let them change us. I pray that God would speak into our lives exactly what we need to hear. I'm praying God would open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts, change what we see and what we seek. Please, God, explain to us these parables. Amen.